Marie Hennon is a Canadian and Lebanese-Egyptian lawyer practicing in Toronto. Her firm is well known for trying high-profile criminal law cases. She recently wrote a book about her life and law called Nothing But The Truth, which is one of the 2022 Evergreen Award-nominated titles. It discusses growing up as an immigrant in Canada, finding her passion in law, developing her own firm, and the law system she works within. Join me as I chat with her about her work, the law, fashion, and feminism as a professional, and much more. I have to admit, I was definitely a little bit nervous about this one. Interviewing someone whose profession is discourse is a little intimidating, especially when she's a badass lawyer. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be able to get the chance to sort of pick your brain a little bit. My pleasure. Oh, My great. Pleasure. Awesome. Are you having a busy morning? Uh, most mornings start out pretty busy, actually. You know, there's a, there is a flood of things and emergencies and emails, and then it, it sort of settles down as the day goes on. Mm-hmm. Are you in, like, the burnout after a trial, or are you, like, mid-frenzy right now? No, uh, I'm not in a burnout after, after trial. We're sort of doing a lot of prep leading up to... Uh, you know, it's really weird in, in our business. It, it used to be that summers are dead, and most people don't want to have trials in summer. Most people don't want to be lit. They're going away. Uh, But even that has been really unpredictable. Uh, So, you know, some summers you're completely slammed, others you're not. But September, October, November are always busy months. And so you're you're generally prepping to get ready to go for the fall. Right. How has the last couple of years affected how the courts and how your processes work? That's a great question. I mean, when uh, COVID first hit, the courts were shut down like everything else. And uh, we are a litigation firm, both civil and criminal litigation. And so our work is in a courtroom. Uh, We were waiting to see for the courts to adjust to the new circumstances. And of course, people sitting in jail, people who have trials pending, can't just be held in abeyance for, for two years. So the courts gradually um, pivoted to online uh, trials, Zoom trials, uh, Zoom appearances. And within, I I would say, probably about three months or so, it it started coming back. Uh, Now, we were not practicing in the way we had been practicing. You were not going to a physical courtroom. But trials did gradually uh, proceed and um, things gradually normalized uh, as much as they could uh, in in the context of COVID. And so now as we're coming out of it, you know, the the benefit is that the court system had to digitize really quickly. And there are good things about that, but we are getting back to in-person appearances now. Mm -hmm. Do you think any of the sort of the hybrid trials or anything like that will last now that we're getting back to normal? Yes, I I think they will. I think they're very um, helpful for witnesses, for example, that are from out of town and for whom it's very difficult to travel into court. So I think we'll have that continue. I think for uh, appearances that don't necessarily require everyone to attend court or motions, uh, those will continue to proceed uh, remotely, which I think is very good uh, and an efficient way to use resources. So I think we'll have a bit of a hybridized system that has forced us to come into the century technologically, which is a good thing. Yeah, I'm sure there were some barriers against that initially with trying to sort out any like ethical concerns and whatnot with, you know, having things on a different platform where you can't necessarily control everything that's going on. Uh, definitely. I mean, that that is an ongoing uh, challenge, but we had more basic challenges, which is that the, the court system is not uh, integrated 
through an, a particular platform, technological platform. So courts were um, running around trying to get those platforms so that you could even file things electronically. So it, look, there's been a lot of movement forward and I think there's some positive results to it. That's fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself? I uh, graduated from law school. Uh, I went to University of Toronto for undergrad. I did not complete my undergraduate degree. I got to law school after my second year of university and uh, was at Osgoode Hall Law School, graduated, articled at what was known then as Greenspan, Rosenberg and Burr, uh, which was a criminal defense firm. And I was there for a year doing my articling. I went away and did my graduate degree at Columbia Law School in New York and uh, got my master's and came back to Toronto. And eventually, through a bit of a circuitous route, I ended up working back with, with Eddie and spent the next 11 years of my career there. In my 11th year, I decided to open up my own shop, open up my own law firm. And uh, that's where I've been for over 20 years. And sort of the getting started of that has a lot of uh, fun stories along with it, too. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the, the marketing that sort of accidentally happened, the accidental branding? Sure. I mean, I didn't know anything about marketing. Criminal lawyers are notoriously bad at, at self-promotion, at marketing. You know, we're not in the business of repeat clients. And so... I knew nothing about the business, the actual business of, of law or how to run a practice. And so, you know, I, I opened up my, my firm and was trying to figure it out. Uh, and one of the things people told me is, look, you need a better website. Your website sucks. And I was like, well, why? Well, who would ever go to the website? That's how novice I was about all of this. But they said, you got to improve it. And so my sister-in-law, was a bookkeeper for uh, advertising firms. And she said, you know, I have a friend who might be able to help you out and uh, as a personal favor to her. And so they agreed to take us on as clients. They knew nothing about law. They knew nothing about law firms and how you market them. And nor did I, I, I didn't know anything about it. And so they, they presented me with an option of a bunch of photographers. And I, of course, being a, a complete fashion victim, uh, chose the fashion photographer because I thought, well, this is awesome. You know, you can write off as a business expense, a great fashion shoot. And when in my life am I going to have a fashion shoot? So that's what we did. The firm went and we had these incredible photographers that shoot fashion magazines. And we did this fun day of just dressing up. And, you know, my partner, Danielle, wanted a wind machine. So we got that. And, and it was just completely silly and a, a complete fun day. So the, the photograph came out and, and after a few months, I started getting calls from people saying like, oh, this is crazy. Yeah, why would you, you know, do a photograph like this? Because it wasn't your traditional lawyers in a business suit. It was a little more fashion-y, obviously. Uh, I wasn't wearing a suit. I had my bare arms exposed, which apparently was a shock to the legal community that I had arms. Um, and people were really surprised that it wasn't the traditional law firm picture. Uh, and it, it sort of caught fire. Uh, and really, subsequently, I learned from a number of marketing, large marketing uh, groups in uh, various firms that that really changed the approach to um, how law firms wanted to market themselves, so that they became a little edgier, a little more willing to be less stiff in their in their presentation. And, you know, you'll see, oh, I still get people sending me pictures of their, their website saying, you know, look, we sort of were modeling ourselves after you. So it wasn't a deliberate brand, Sarah. It was just a complete uh, silliness on my part of, of wanting to just have fun. 
which I found is really a lot of how my our brand developed. It was really a function of being uh, true to myself and, and true to the things that were interesting to me and not more than that. Mm-hmm. And now they must be updated photos now, but the photos on your website now are definitely within the same sort of, you know, fashion-y yeah. style. So obviously those are... Those are the originals. You can find the originals uh, online, but, uh, you know, the new photos really were designed to hopefully capture a bit of the personalities of, of everybody being photographed. Everyone has very distinctive personalities and, and they are unique. And we wanted, we wanted that. We wanted people to convey a bit of themselves. Uh, I think there's nothing wrong with members of the public or the clients seeing a little bit of who you are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it ended up with some interesting um, like digital Christmas cards as well, I read in your book. So what was that well, was story? Very, well, that was that was slightly before, but um, you know, the law firms were tend to send around these digital Christmas cards. And I think they're I found them a little sanctimonious. Uh, they are not charities, they are uh, businesses that are designed for profit and adversarial systems. So I found them sort of silly. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun if I just did a Christmas card that is completely different? And so uh, I called my brother who was in the, had been in the entertainment industry and said, do you know anyone who like would do a shoot a sheet video for us uh, for a couple of thousand bucks? And, and he knew someone. And so we just shot this video of your mean one, Mr. Grinch and me walking through the firm and just like destroying stuff. And we just thought it was fun. And we just sent it to friends of ours in the business. It was not a grand marketing ploy. It really was to hopefully give people a bit of a chuckle and a, a bit of a, a poke at those sort of silly video cards, but it, it took off. Uh, so we did it for a few years, just firm again, it was just my own entertainment and what I thought was funny um, and no other grand reason. I mean, we weren't sending it to get clients from, from people. We were just sending it out because we thought it was fun and a way to connect uh, with our legal community. Mm-hmm. Have you done more in that style since then, or is it just a one-off magnificent clip? <laughs> no, uh, we did we did a, a few videos, and then we did a few cards, actually. Um, you know, one year we did a, a card which she opened up and had music in it, which I thought was, which was very funny, which was a bit of a play on, on the photograph. So when you opened it up, it, it, the song was, How Do You Like Me Now? <laughs> and the pictures were really designed to be stock photos of what you think a law firm would look like. So it was, you know, everyone buttoned up uh, in, in suits, holding briefcases, looking really stiff. The only thing was there was a massive explosion going on behind us. We thought it was extremely funny. And I was wondering if people would sort of cue into what we were doing, which is the stock photo superimposed effectively on, a, on an explosion, which is completely nonsensical. And some people got it. Some people got the joke because uh, it was this reference to, to the previous photo. Uh, some did not. And uh, so, you know, we've done sort of stuff like that. But again, it, it, there's no consistency to it. It just depends on when we're in the mood and and <laughs> coming up with something that I think is just funny. Yeah. So you're just kind of having fun and it happens to keep working out really well for you. Yeah. yeah well, it's organic. I think that's uh-huh. that's what it is. And, and there's no I, I think there's no ulterior motive to it. Um, you know, certainly as we get larger and we are now much larger as a firm, uh, you, you think of uh, marketing in a, a, a much more traditional way, and, and that happens, of course. Uh, but, you know, we also are, are uh, continue to do things that I think are, are more uh, consistent with stuff that makes us happy and, and is more reflective of the quirkiness of our firm. So, you know, we rented out, for example, 
um, Bar Chef, which is this phenomenal cocktail bar. And um, it was amazing. It, it's not the type of venue that you would normally have a law party, but we did. And we had a, a drag queen at the front desk, uh, <laughs> sort of letting guests in. And it was a ton of fun for us. I mean, it was more reflective of the sort of party I'd want to go to. So we still do that sort of stuff, uh, but there is a more uh, traditional marketing component that that also has to kick in when you're a firm of this size. Mm-hmm. So is the sort of quirkier style and feel, does that translate into like how you guys practice law as well? Or does that have to be a more professional version of, you know, the lawyer outfit when you're doing that? No, well, we are extremely professional, uh, but I think where it translates is in the personalities of the people that are at the firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's fair to say there, there are people that are, you know, very unique personalities, very quirky. Uh, it's a, a highly intellectually charged firm. You know, you're never, as I always tell people, you're not the smartest person at the table because everybody at the table is really super smart. It's a dynamic firm. And uh, that's really driven by the personalities that that we we bring on um, because it's important that you've got that that connection. So, you know, we uh, we are a, a tough litigation firm and we are certainly have the reputation of being extremely professional. So I think it's reflected more in the personalities of who gets drawn to a, a less um, stuffy, uh, rigid environment. Right. And do you think, is that division like lawyers in general or is criminal law, do you think, under a specific sort of stuffiness that you're against? Uh, criminal law tends to draw more quirky people. They tend to be lone wolves. I mean, that's that's the way that criminal law firms historically have operated. Uh, we're unusual in the sense that we have this hybrid uh, litigation model of both criminal and civil. Uh, but I, I think it's more a function of uh, drawing certain people to our firm that that want that that experience, uh, you know. And as you look through our website, you'll see, you know, there's a lot of Harvard, Yale, Supreme Court of Canada <laughs> clerks. I mean, the the quality of the intellect is incredible. But they are also people that are, uh, you know, don't want to work on Bay Street. That that are interested in a in a different uh, boutique firm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Could you tell us a little bit more about your book? I started to um, get pitched to write a book uh, for, for a few years and sort of kept saying I, I couldn't really think of what it was that I wanted to, to talk about. But, you know, ultimately, I, I as I thought it through, uh, came to the conclusion that there were things I wanted to say and things that I wanted to share with the public uh, about myself and about the justice system, uh, about my career, because you know, often what you're seeing is a, a very two-dimensional portrait of, of someone sort of walking into court and what you think lawyers are like on TV. And I, I didn't think that was a complete representation or full representation. I wanted to share that with members of the public and, and Canadians to understand more about our legal system and hopefully demystify some of it and engender some pride and protection of it. And to explain a little bit about about who I am and where I come from and, you know, what you're seeing and and why you're seeing what you're seeing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so ultimately to do that, I thought I needed to be willing to share a little bit more about myself than I I would like to. I'm not I'm a pretty private person, uh, but I didn't think I could write the book that I wanted to write if I wasn't willing to to open up and share a little bit more of myself. Right. 
Right. Your book is is a really fantastic introduction to what you were talking about and sort of understanding the Canadian law system, especially uh, for those of us who don't really, we don't have any experience in it. We don't really see it beyond the news, anything like that. Is there another resource that you would recommend once people have read yours, if they want to do a deeper dive and learn more about some of the things you're talking about, where would they head next? To a court. Uh, that okay. really is the best place. Uh, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's really, uh, you should not be getting your legal education from TV shows because that's not at all what cases are like. That's not how they run. Uh, it, it doesn't happen with the speed you're seeing. And, and often it's it's much more methodical, forensic, deliberate uh, than people think. And so I've always found that inviting people to a court to go and see uh, how it works, uh, what happens is an incredibly important experience for members of the public. And uh, they come away with a, a different sense of it, a, a, certainly an appreciation, but also more questions. And I think all of that is very good. So that's one place to go. If, if you can get to a courtroom, that's phenomenal. And there are people who do. There are really quite a few people, members of the public that like to go to court and see what's going on. You know, and the, the other places, there are other books about the legal profession. Um, you know, Eddie's book, uh, The Case for the Defense, uh, is an outstanding book and, and talks about specific cases and lessons to be drawn from that. So, you know, that's a good place to go if you want to learn a little bit more. Uh, and the last thing is there are, our courts are open and the cases are open. So, you know, you can read about a case in the news or you can actually just Google the Supreme Court of Canada and on their website is the actual case itself. You can you can read it. Um, you can also watch remotely because Supreme Court of Canada cases are televised and recorded. If you have a particular interest in it, you can watch the argument. It's really, really fascinating. Uh, it, it's, and I'm not talking just, you don't have to be a law nerd to, to be <laughs> fascinated. I remember I brought my parents to the Supreme Court once to, to come and see sort of what happens. And they were fascinated by how it works to see the nine judges there, to see the sorts of questions that they're asking. It really, really is interesting and available to, to the public to come and see. Okay. And you learned law in both Canada and the United States, correct? Yeah. I, well, I had my, my law degrees from here, but right. my graduate degree was from the States. And so as part of that, you have to uh, do a bit of studying about the American system. And, mm -hmm. and in particular, I was focused on criminal. Right. You could sort of tell in your book, it was interesting that you were able to sort of discuss you know, like North American law almost because you, you sort of have the experience with the American and the Canadian. How, how uh, different yeah. are the two systems really? Well, uh, you know, they're, they're fundamentally, they're the same in the sense of the, the basic principles. So they're the Anglo-American system is all sort of the same. It's based on uh, very fundamental principles like the presumption of innocence, like uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, I'll focus just on criminal. So there are fundamental principles that we uh, all subscribe to. And the, and the way that trials work is generally the same. It's also generally the same in England. But there are some very significant differences. They have a state and federal system. So uh, unlike that in Canada, where all crimes are federal, in the United States, there's state and federal. So there's you can be in state court and federal court for a criminal case. Uh, they have uh, different approaches to the way that prosecutors conduct themselves, whereas we have a bit more of a British approach. Uh, the United States has a different approach. They have a different approach to sentencing. And so there, there are there are different some very fundamental differences in attitude and approach. 
Uh, I do some cross-border work. So I, you know, I've interacted with American prosecutors and American cases. Uh, so there are differences. Uh, and I think it is important to keep those differences in mind and sort of see where we as a country in Canada want to land in our in our justice system. Mm -hmm. And what made you decide to come back to Canada with how much you love New York? I'm a little surprised that you ended up sticking here. My family uh, was mm. here and so my life was here. My law degree was here. And so it made sense that I came back. Uh, you know, if you want to stay in the United States and, and be have a shot at the sort of level of work that I would have been interested in, it would have required another year uh, of studying. And you want to do it at some place like Columbia. So you have access to all of the, you know, the big jobs. Uh, and at that time, you know, it just didn't make sense given my family and my financial situation. Uh, so, you know, once you come here and you put all the effort, it's it's not, law unfortunately is not a, um, a type of degree that you can translate, you know, that you can, you can move. It's not a movable thing. I, I'm happy I'm here. I'm, I'm happy I'm in the Canadian system, candidly. How does the Canadian law system sort of stack up internationally even, like based on your knowledge? Well, we should be extraordinarily proud of it. We have a, a, a bit of a different sense. Our judges in particular, I think, are far, far less political than the uh, American uh, judges. Uh, we don't have elected judges, so they're not there trying to curry favor with members of the public. And what's really interesting is though, although at the at certain levels they are political appointments, in other words, the government appoints them, when you look at their cases, they don't presumptively side with the, per, the, the government that's appointed them, which is really different than the United States. Uh, so we should be very proud of the fact that we have a really strong tradition of an independent judiciary. And uh, we should be very, very active in protecting that uh, because that the independent judiciary is what allows members of the public to challenge the government, to, to, to challenge laws, to challenge things they don't like uh, about what's happening in Canada. And you want those people making those decisions to be completely independent and not beholden to anybody. Uh, so we should really um, look very long and hard at our system and, and the values in it and the things that we want to protect carefully, particularly as the political environment uh, that we see uh, changes and and threatens to erode some of those fundamental protections for Canadian citizens. So you see that as it's under threat right now? Well, I think you just have to look at the United States to know it's it's very significantly under threat. I don't, uh, we don't have a wall. We have a, a border and we are, if you look at historically what tends to happen in law, uh, we tend uh, politically even to follow lag behind the United States, but often follow and get moved by what is happening. And so it's wrong to think that we are in some sort of bubble unimpacted or that, you know, January 6th is a thing that's a United States experience, but we, we don't have that. That's simply not true. We know that we had protests and that we have those voices here in Canada. So we have to be very careful not to be so arrogant and thinking, oh, we're, we're just different. That'll never happen here. That's the, that is the biggest mistake you could conceivably make. Mm -hmm. And it's profoundly naive to make it when we share a border with, not only do we share a border, we share media, we share social media. I mean, that is our closest neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's our closest neighbor in a number of ways. So no, we need to be very, very careful 
and very cautious and very much uh, on guard of the things that we value in this country that distinguish us, us from the United States. Right. So do, should we be concerned about, I mean, we should be concerned about laws leaking over from them as well, like changes in laws, I would assume Absolutely. as well. Are you concerned about the Roe v. Wade that just happened? I know that's sort of on the top of everybody's mind right now. Yes, I, I, it shows you a number of things. It shows you that that position is a winning political position, mm-hmm. uh, that it is a, a political position that gets currency and gets you elected. And if you know anything about the decades of effort, political effort that was put into overturning Roe v. Wade, it didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a very deliberate march to reverse it. And the way it was done was by electing individuals who promised uh, to appoint people they viewed as being uh, willing to overturn it. To think that politicians here are not looking, saying, oh, that's a good way to get elected, that's a good winning strategy, is silly and naive. Uh, Just look at some of the language that is being advanced in Canada by various politicians. So no, we need to be careful of that and know that it is used as a political weapon to succeed and that there is a demographic that finds it very compelling. So Mm -hmm. yes, we should be very worried, absolutely. How do you see the average person sort of guarding against that? Like, what can we do? Because I know that, you know, most, especially all the females in Canada right now, are definitely a little bit concerned. So what can the average person do to sort of work against that? You can vote. You can ensure that you can call politicians on their statements. Uh, You should not accept uh, what's being said uh, blindly. Uh, You should push back. Uh, You should make clear that we are Canadian, not American, that we don't subscribe to those same values. And, uh, you know, when you have politicians, uh, as we do, spouting those sorts of values, thinking it's going to get votes, that that the public has to be very alive and awake to that threat. It's it's a bit of a, a sleeping giant. But as I said, Roe v. Wade doesn't get overturned in one vote. It gets overturned over decades, right? It's a slow, it's a a particular uh, decision to appeal to a certain demographic of the voting that we need to challenge politicians that say silly, stupid, pandering things. And one of the ways is to challenge them. One of the ways is for women to be more involved in politics. And the other way is is to vote. Mm-hmm. against politicians to convey to them that that does not win in Canada. Mm-hmm. So while we're we're in the thick of it, one of the parts of your book that I really enjoyed the most was when you were talking about why there's this perception that not everybody deserves a defense and your sort of explanation of why that that is so important. It not only made a lot of sense, because I think we all know intellectually, yes, everybody deserves a defense, but it's the emotional part of our brains that is sometimes hard to turn off when you're looking at these cases and you're like, well, they obviously did it. Why, why is anybody defending them? Why is this even an option? So can you talk a little bit more about why that's so important and why it's so fundamental? Sure. I mean, you have to take a look at, and it's always important to remember our history and to remember how many times we know through wrongful convictions that we think, oh, it's so obvious this person did it. And we subsequently learn that they are uh, they were not uh, guilty of the crime that they were charged with. Uh, you think of the numerous wrongful convictions in Canada, Donald Marshall, Guy Paul Moran. Um, and we know in the United States, people have been executed and subsequently exonerated. 
that has to tell us one thing, that sometimes the thing we think we know is just simply not clear. And that is the fundamental problem, that there is no way, there is no uh, lab we can go to to say, are we 100% correct? It's an emotion, you're right, it's a feeling, and it's a feeling often based on not having all the information. And so that is why we have to remember that and know that the way to determine someone's guilt or innocence isn't by social media and isn't by your gut feeling and isn't by uh, you know, a, an assumption about who always tells the truth, but through the hearing of evidence where both sides are represented and where an independent judge can consider all of it. Uh, that is the ultimate protection. And so when you have those when you have cases litigated in that way where there everything is presented or you even have you know a, a crown view and a defense view you've got pretty much all of it in that case right you've got both competing sides it's the best opportunity to to try to figure out uh, where the truth lies and it is the best way to avoid wrongful convictions uh, so we have to remember always that 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 mob mentality that rush to judgment is often wrong and we have to resist it as much as emotionally you may feel this is all, why are we wasting time uh, we know we know historically why we are wasting time why eyewitness identification can be completely mistaken uh, why uh, you know people people's assumptions about what occurred can be completely mistaken when you hear all the evidence so that's why we don't adjudicate cases on social media on twitter uh, based on what your gut feeling is, I, you're entitled to all those feelings. You, you certainly are. Uh, but that's not how we would want any one of us to face a criminal charge. And we have to be disciplined about that. You know, in, in your book, you spoke about the fact that you don't really have that trouble anymore in distinguishing any sort of like emotional side that you might have when you're defending someone. Was that sort of a learned behavior that you had to work on to detach your the emotional side of your brain while you're defending people? Well, in the same way that you would not ever think a doctor is required to do an assessment. I mean, doctors perform surgery on people with criminal records. Doctors also uh, help people and save lives of people that you think are not nice. Uh, there are doctors that work in jails. Mm -hmm. uh, and we would never say to them that you cannot save someone's life or you cannot help them uh, because they're not a nice person, because we think everybody's entitled to medical care. Mm -hmm. uh, and a, a, a doctor knows their role, just as a defense lawyer knows their role. And my role isn't to make moral judgments about my clients. My role is to defend them uh, within the bounds of the law, within the ethical constraints that I have, and there are many, um, and to present their best case. And uh, that is what you always keep uppermost in your mind. Now, that doesn't mean that it's for everybody. Not everybody uh, accepts that or everybody feels comfortable with it. And so people are prosecutors or people don't practice criminal law at all. And so we all, I think, uh, try to find the job that works for us and is consistent with our, our value system. But I, I know I do not lose sleep over, over that kind of <laughs> question. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't, you couldn't and still do no. your job, of course. No, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. And, uh, you know, if you find that you are judging your client, you probably shouldn't represent them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so another section of your book that I really enjoyed was when you were talking about this sort of um, disconnect between the idea of women being both fashionable and professional. Uh, mm -hmm. So could you speak a little bit more about sort of your experience with that and how you 
you know, how you view that now? Well, you know, I think most uh, most women and women that are in public in a public context are given a bit of a different treatment. You know, I know that none of my male colleagues who litigated high profile cases uh, had a single article written about what suit or shoes they were wearing. I have had many, and that is common, right? That is a very common uh, approach. That uh, you know, if it's Hillary Clinton, there there are articles about her hair and her pantsuit and what that tells you about her. Mm-hmm. But there were none of Trump uh, about what he wore or what his suit was like. And that that just tells you that uh, when women are in a public context and are covered, we are still being assessed based on things that have nothing to do with the price of gas. You know, at one point I was collecting articles on, you know, women that were uh, leaders, women that were in political office and how many of them referenced something about their physical appearance and and virtually all do. Uh, So that that is really unfortunate. You know, I, I think. Uh, we come in all shapes and sizes and it's for us to decide what we choose to look like. And it's, it's really not for public commentary in my view, you know, mm-hmm. especially when you're not doing a job that, you know, you're not modeling in vogue. Look, if I get invited <laughs> to do that, then you can comment on what I'm wearing. But, you know, for most professional uh, women or women in public eye, it, 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 you should be commenting on what they're doing. Non, it, it's just shouldn't be an easily, uh, and permissible topic of, of conversation. Mm-hmm. And to sort of work against that, we just keep wearing whatever we want to wear and hope that people get on board. I, th- I think you keep being who you are. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, look, the problem is that when those comments are made, just to be clear, uh, it's not because they really care uh, about mm-hmm. what you're wearing. It's because they're trying to say something about you. And, and that's the, um, I think that's the, uh, shot, right? That's the attempt to undermine that somehow it's manufactured or somehow it says something about who you are as a human being or as a professional. And so it's, it's not, it's not like Vogue is doing an analysis of what you wore to court. It's uh, an article that is, is reporting on your case and then decides to report on what you're wearing. And that Mm -hmm. to me is just designed to take a shot. I think you know, I've got it easy. I I can't imagine what young women and teenage women who are on social media, what an extraordinary pressure that is on them to constantly be told and poked, uh, you know, reminded you don't look correct or you're not good enough or you're not wearing the right thing. It's such a, it's such a debilitating pressure on, Mm -hmm. on women. You know, as I say, like, at least when I was growing up, I didn't know how uncool I was, right? I really had to work hard to figure it out, but you could be sort of delusional because I wasn't looking at images all day, every day, 24 hours a day, telling me, you know, Mm -hmm. your hair is not right. Your face isn't right. Your body's not right. What you're wearing isn't right. So uh, women in the public context uh, is one thing, but I I just think young women have it so much tougher and, uh, it's hard for them to resist it and uh, and to turn it off. And I don't have the answer for how how we help them do that. Yeah, I I like to think that perhaps it's it's starting to change. Even just looking at, for example, like school dress regulations. Right? There's always been this perception that like if you're wearing spaghetti straps, obviously you can't be studying properly. You're not intelligent if you're dress. You know, you're wearing a short dress. You're obviously not you know, working properly at school sort of thing. And some of those regulations, at least in Ontario, have 
changed a little bit. Some schools are allowing, you know, what I would never have been allowed to wear when I was, when I was a kid. Right. And now they can wear it and it doesn't have to mean that they're less good at school, but even just in professional fields, um, it's, it's interesting to see occasionally people who are professional, even like I work in a library, right? So it's not super professional, like a lawyer, but every once in a while, someone might look at you funny if you're wearing like a, you know, a sleeveless top that, and your straps are a little thin. Well, I've always had that. I mean, I was, um, I remember being in law school in the first year and I, you know, my hair was down uh, to my elbows and I just come back from, uh, from Europe and I, a punky person by nature. And so I was dressed punky. My nails were like, I had stiletto nails and whatever. And, um, that first year I was totally dismissed until like the following year, they would sort of announce who had done well and who had, and, and people said, Oh, you're, you're, you know, you're smart. We thought you were an art student, just sort of popping by the law school. Uh, but you know what? I I have a good sense of self-confidence and I could care less. I didn't, I don't know what, looking smart uh, means I'm going to look the way I want to look and the proof's in the pudding, right? It's based mm-hmm. on your, what your turn out. So I do hope some of that is changing because I think you can take nothing from our appearance about other aspects of our life. I really do. And um, it's good to hear that, that schools are, are allowing young women to express themselves in the way they feel most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's interesting, the the sort of the people you see commenting on it, uh, at least in my experience, it's often sort of the the older women who are like, wow, what a cool outfit you've got going on. Yeah. I could never wear that. And it's like, I mean, yay, because that's sort of the people that you would worry about judging right. you because that's not how they grew up. Right. And that's not right. how they were raised that professional doesn't look like that. Professional can't right. be fashionable as well. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. No, I think there's a bit of a uh, a bit of a shift, um, and hopefully a bit of a less focus on uh, our appearance and more on our performance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I was also interested that you said that you love watching law shows, even even with all the inaccuracies. Do you have a favorite? No, I don't have a favorite. I mean, it's so funny. I've been binging on Lincoln Lawyer, which I'm not. <laughs> loving, but uh, there's no law show, whether it's a, a, a documentary or a, a fiction that I won't watch. I, I'm just, it's, I'm not unique in that way. I think a lot of the world is interested in them. There's a reason for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I will watch virtually anything that's law related. And it doesn't drive you crazy to see the inaccuracies? Oh, no, it does. It certainly does. It, it will drive me crazy to see the inaccuracies or when I see televised trials and I'm seeing a cross-examination, I'm like, oh my gosh, what do you, you know, no, don't ask the question like that. But um, it's still the stuff that I find fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Is there one that is like the worst, like when you just couldn't watch it, it was just too bad? Well, The, well, the Good Wife was pretty, like, I watched it, but you know, the ethical compromises were stunning uh, and mm-hmm. so ridiculous uh, that it, it, it just, it was not, it was not real. Uh, there was yes. nothing real about it. I think when people come to see a court or when they, they sort of see what you do, I think they are surprised by that. Like, it's just not, it's not how it's depicted. It is way more controlled and way more forensic and, and uh, much more deliberate than, than what you're seeing on, on TV for sure. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I also found out that you now have a prize named after you. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, sorry. The pro bono uh, appellate program started now probably 17 years ago uh, when myself and a colleague of mine, who's a judge now, uh, realized that there were people who'd been convicted going to the Court of Appeal that were completely unrepresented. And we have a duty counsel program in provincial court so that if you go to court and you're not represented, there is duty counsel funded by the government that would allow you at least to get some assistance. Uh, but can you imagine being convicted of murder and going to a court of appeal and arguing your own appeal? And at the appellate level, what you're arguing about is legal errors predominantly. There's no way a member of the public would even know where to begin. So we were seeing this happening and thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do a duty counsel program of appellate lawyers who would attend for free to provide their services to help people who have to argue their own appeals. And uh, that's the program and it's been operating. I am now, my office is involved in it. I'm not uh, personally involved in that. I was involved in it for well over a decade. And it's an incredible program. I, I think it, it really brings value to members of the public, to the court and, and to the people who you know, find themselves in front of three judges having to speak a language they don't understand, legal language, and feeling like they have nobody to give voice to the things they wanna to bring to the court's attention. It's been a, a profoundly fulfilling program. And I, I know the lawyers that are involved in it um, who are all amazing and donate their time for free, just for free and uh, are committed to it also get a great deal out of it. And so since you've uh, retired as one of the chairs, now that there's there's a prize at Osgoode Hall sort of in your name as an honor for founding it? That's right. That's what mm-hmm. the, the prize was started as a result of that and, and uh, is very meaningful uh, to me, obviously, and uh, it is to recognize uh, students. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. So with you know, everything you've got going on, do you, do you want to stay where you're at now? Or do you have future career goals that involve like, I don't know, becoming a judge or anything like that? What a great question. Uh, I never want to stay where I'm at. uh, Because uh, that's not consistent with my personality. I don't, you know, I don't want to stay where I'm at physically. And I never want to stay where I'm at in in my profession. I mean, I'm always interested in doing new stuff. No, I have no interest in being a judge. I, I love the practice of law. But my practice has changed uh, over time. I, you know, I do a broader range of, of work and a, a lot of civil work. I, I don't know what, what is next, but I'm the type of person who's always curious and always interested and I don't like staying put. I think we've got a, a short time on this earth and I want to do as much and experience as much as I conceivably can. I'm a bit of an experience and information junkie. So I don't know. I don't know what's next, but I'm always looking and I'm always curious as to, you know, the things that people think you shouldn't be doing, which generally means I will want to try it and want to do it. So yes, what's next. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) And I also have a question I have to ask as a librarian, is there a book that you've read recently that you would recommend? Well, you know, the one that I read that I, I really liked was Sapiens. I thought that was fascinating. Now, maybe it was because we're in the pandemic and I just wanted to understand what the hell is going on. I thought that was was really great. Anything with David Sedaris, because I just, he makes me laugh. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've got all of his books. I loved Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, Between the World and Me. I, I, I was blown away by that book and the writing. I thought it was incredibly, uh, incredibly compelling. So those are the books that have, I think, struck me the most over the last 
year or two. Mm -hmm. Do you find you read books any differently now that you're, you know, officially an author? Has that changed the way you read? No, I think what drives what I read is really my, my mood and what I'm interested in. And, and also, you know, if I'm, if I'm doing a ton of reading at work and it's like an intense period, I find that I have no, I want to watch the dumbest things available on TV. Mm-hmm. And then when, when it's not, uh, I feel like just consuming a lot of, it, it, I find that for me reading really ebbs and flows, really mm-hmm. ebbs and flows. And I have this need to go back to all the books that I loved that I just want to reread. Like I want to read all of Faulkner's books because they were so compelling to me when I was growing up. And I just want to read them again and see how, what I, my perception is of them now. So mm-hmm. I've got a, wrong, a long, a very long reading list. Yeah, for sure. And do you think that you will write another book or have you said what you wanted to say? Such a great question. I, you know, I think I might write another book. I, I think right now I'm I'm more inclined to write different essays about things. Uh, you know, I think I've said what I wanted to say about myself, uh, but there are things I still have to say. So, and I find writing very uh, cathartic and very enjoyable. I, I do enjoy it. I don't find it tortuous and I find it a good way to um, express and work through things that I'm, I, I want to articulate. So I, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily not writing again. I, I think I might very well. Okay. Did you find any of your skills as a lawyer really lent themselves really well to writing a book when you started? Yeah, I think the discipline certainly was very helpful. Our business, we do do a lot of writing and what, and the business of litigation, what you say is important and how you say it is important. And so the precision of that, I think, may have been helpful. Um, I think also because I could hear how it would sound um, and how it would be read, that that was helpful to me as well. So I think there are certain skills that were were helpful. Well, I love that you were also the narrator for the audiobook too. So I actually read your book as the audiobook. So it was very uh, cool that you were able to sort of, you know, everything was really in your voice like literally, yeah. but also you were able to say everything exactly the way you wanted it to sound. Yeah. I, you know, I'd never done that. And they, they asked me, the publisher asked me to read it and I said, okay, fine, but I don't know how that's going to work out. <laughs> uh, but uh, it went very well actually. And, and went fairly quickly because again, you don't realize the skill of when your job is to speak and to speak publicly, it, it is very helpful when you're doing an audiobook. Of course. So it went, it went relatively quickly. <laughs> which was good. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I have not heard it, but people tell me it's interesting to hear it in my voice. Mm-hmm. Well, some books, I think, just lend themselves better when they're actually in the author's voice, you know, That's especially true. something where yeah. it's written in the first person. So it's sure. It makes a lot that of natural sense. sense in that way. That was really lovely. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, but, you know, when you write something, you never know how it's going to be received. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's always the unnerving part of it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I thank you so much for joining me. It was it was really fun to be able to sort of pick your brain and learn a little bit more about all of this. It was it was a fun experience learning through your book and really wonderful to be able to sort of bug you with all my follow up questions, too. Oh, my gosh. I, I love it. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and thank you for reading the book. I appreciate it. Yes, of course. Well, thank you. And have a lovely rest of your morning. You too. Take care, Sarah. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to my chat with Marie Hennen, author of Nothing But The Truth. 
I encourage you to read her book as well as the other nominated titles. If you enjoyed this chat, you'll probably enjoy some of my other interviews with the Evergreen authors. Follow us to hear more, and if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend.